your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is George Will. George is a Pulitzer Prize-winning political columnist, and although I doubt we'll get to talk about this today, the author of some terrific books on baseball, which always make me feel guilty for only following the sport on those rare occasions when the Phillies make the playoffs. George, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Glad to be with you. Now, the reason I wanted to have you on today actually goes back to an interview we did with Charles Murray, where he mentioned in passing the radical shift in American political and legal thinking following the takeover by progressive thinkers during the early 20th century. And it occurred to me that most people don't realize how radical this change was and how it continues to shape today's political landscape. Now, you've written a lot about this issue, and I want to start by setting some context. Over my desk, I have a picture of our mutual friend, James Madison, and I wonder if you could summarize the original American system that he helped create. He helped create what we rightly call the Natural Rights Republic. A republic built around the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, the most important word in which is the word secure. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, and governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. So the natural rights republic begins with the proposition that rights pre-exist government, and government is inherently limited by its limited task of protecting these pre-existing rights. That's the basic American creed. That was the prevailing American creed until the 20th century when progressivism uh, undertook to oppose it and eventually, I'm afraid, overthrew it. So let's and the turn... iconic yes, sir, go ahead. Well, yeah, let's turn then to the progressives. Who were they and what did they advocate? Well, the iconic figure is Woodrow Wilson, who was the first American president ever to criticize the American founding. And he didn't do it peripherally. He did it root and branch. He said, it's the natural rights doctrine that is the problem. He said, do not read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. They'll just mislead you because they produce a government too limited for the purposes that progressives had which were nothing if not ambitious. He said the separation of powers, which is the heart of our Madisonian constitutional order, uh, it was all right once, he said, rather condescendingly, but not suitable now for a dynamic nation uh, in which we needed more power concentrated in Washington, more Washington power concentrated in the executive branch, and more executive branch power concentrated in independent agencies uh, acting at the behest of the president. So progressivism wound up in opposing the separation of powers, wound up giving us the kind of watery Caesarism of today's cult of the presidency. So that's primarily what they're against, or at least in broad terms, they're for more political power. But what countries did they, or systems, did they regard as an ideal or at least admire? They admired Germany. Uh, in the late 19th century, when a young political scientist, fresh out of Princeton and studying at Johns Hopkins and then 
teaching and, and other schools, uh, named Thomas Woodrow Wilson, Tommy Wilson, he'd been known at Princeton. Uh, when, the, when you wanted graduate education in the late 19th century, you went to Germany because we really didn't have graduate schools then. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was to become the first president of the American Political Science Association. And people, he did not go to Germany, but many of his teachers did. And you went to Germany to study two things. One was the science of administration, the ideal of the Prussian bureaucracy, supposedly disinterested, angelically so, disinterested people, uh, bringing vast expertise of the new social sciences, such as sociology and political science, to bear again in a disinterested way on, on the problems of society. Second, you studied in Germany Hegel and others who said that history now is a proper noun. It's history with a, a capital H. History as an unfolding autonomous force with its own inner laws and logic of, of, of development. And progressives had to understand and be on the right side of history. You hear this, by the way, nowadays clearly in the president. When, when uh, Putin misbehaves or ISIS erupts in the Middle East, he says, well, that's just no place in the 20th century because history has moved on. They really believe this. I want to pause. You mentioned Germany. Um, of course, it was Bismarck's Germany that really originated the modern welfare state, which was something the progressives then fought to implement in the United States. Why did they regard the welfare state as important? Well, there were two arguments. The, the German version of the welfare state was frankly paternalistic, and one of its aims was to keep the working class pacified, to reconcile the working class with the inherent insecurities of a dynamic capitalist system. Uh, if you would provide uh, old age pensions and workers' compensation, people would be more apt to tolerate the vicissitudes and frictions and dislocations of a capitalist society. Across the English Channel, the English began to develop a welfare state out of a sense that, that people had rights to these things, that it was a more rights-based understanding of the welfare state rather than the paternalism-based and prudential-based Bismarckian welfare state. The real... Um injection of progressivism, I think, into the law occurs during the 1930s uh, through the New Deal period. Can you tell us a little bit about the way in which progressivism wasn't just a temporary movement, but then really came to dominate our political and legal system? The ascent of progressivism depended upon and was secured by its conquest of constitutional law and its ability to get the courts to become much more deferential to legislatures. They say, we can win elections, and we can stack the, elect the legislatures, but it won't do us any good if we can't get the courts to understand that they have to get out of the way of, of protecting individual rights and liberty of contract. They have to become more deferential to the majoritarian branches of government, uh, the uh, legislative branch exercising its Title I, its Article I powers, and the executive branch exercising its Article II powers. This is why conservatives have made a huge mistake in recent years by stressing their belief in uh, 
their their uh, denunciation of judicial activism and urging courts to be more deferential to legislatures. In doing so, they were simply helping the progressive movement and picking up and singing from the old progressive hymnal. When in the late 1930s, 1937 to be exact, the Supreme Court essentially got out of the business of censoring what legislatures did in their excesses, when the Supreme Court adopted the rational basis test in which it said anything a legislature does regarding economic liberty and property rights, anything, will be tolerated by this court. We will find no constitutional flaw in it if there is any rational basis for it. That meant if anyone can even imagine a justification for this, doesn't have to be a justification that the legislature actually voiced and put forward if the court itself could undertake on its own initiative to dream up a rational basis for some restriction of property rights, then the property rights would stand. So conservatives have ill-served their own cause by uh, trying to, to produce a more deferential and, and pacific and passive judiciary. So there definitely seems to be a different view of the meaning and role of the Constitution between progressives and the traditional American view. That's exactly right. This is why progressivism absolutely depended upon selling the idea that the Constitution is a living document, by which they meant the Constitution is infinitely elastic, that the Constitution can and should be construed to enable the government, that which is to say the political and popular branches of the government, to do whatever in those branches' judgment needs to be done. So the Constitution must be living in the sense of elastic, and elastic in the sense of accommodating the political will of majorities, whatever they might be. Now, as we look at the post-New Deal period, one thing that's striking is that no matter which party has been in charge, we've continued on this track. Uh, the progressive view of law, of government, has really taken hold. And so you've seen the welfare state grown, regulations have grown, the legal system has continued to operate in these assumptions. Why has that continued in your judgment? In part because people still have a kind of sentimental and romantic view of democracy. Let me explain that. A very valuable addition to American social thought, pioneered by James Buchanan, an economist at uh, Virginia, among other places, who won a Nobel Prize, happily. Buchanan pioneered what's called the, the public choice theory. And public choice theory, distilled to its essence, simply says, people in public office are just as self-interested as people are when they act in private markets. In private markets, people try to maximize their economic gain. In political office, people try to maximize the currency of politics, which is power. Therefore, the belief that government is disinterested, that bureaucracies are disinterested, is a sentimentalism that anesthetizes people and gets them to say, well, we can trust the government to do the right thing because, after all, they're only thinking of us. In fact, bureaucracies have their own interests, their own dynamism, their own metabolic urge to expand their controls. And once you understand that government itself is an interest group, then you, you when, when you strip away the romance and sentimentality surrounding democracy 
and see government for what it is, which is a, a self-interested melange of little fiefdoms, then you understand that uh, why it is important for, for Americans to take a colder view of, of government. I want to play devil's advocate for a second, because I think some people would say that, well, what really happened was that progressivism worked. After the New Deal, uh, we had decades of a booming economy. We were able to create a welfare state that lifted certainly many seniors out of poverty. And it was only once we started to roll back the progressive achievement under Reagan and later presidents and administrations that we've started to see, you know, and the litany goes on, whether it's inequality, uh, financial crisis, and so on. I don't expect you to take each piece of that, but what do you think of that sort of narrative? Well, first, you begin your narrative with the phrase, after the New Deal. No one doubts that the New Deal failed at its primary purpose, which was to put the country back to work. Not once between the crash and the inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt in 1933 and the coming of the Second World War when we began to gear up industrially to be the arsenal of democracy. Not once did unemployment ever fall below 14%. So the New Deal failed. The prosperity that came afterwards was the result in part of the war and the buildup and the spending and, most important, the fact that we emerged from the war as the only industrial power that wasn't reduced to rubble or to penury, as the British were. We had the world at our feet because we had this enormous industrial base that had not been bombed. And of course we prospered. And of course organized labor could uh, make exorbitant demands and management could accede to those demands because we had such a competitive advantage in a world still rebuilding from the war. Now. That said, something must be said also, which is, again, the American people want a certain security, and they have made that decision, and there's no point arguing with it. We're going to have a social security system. We're going to have heavy government involvement in guaranteeing a social safety net regarding health care. No point arguing with either of those two things. And there's no reason why conservatives should say they are inherently incompatible with a free, dynamic, and open society. They can be made better than they are, but we can live with them and should because the American people want them. But to say that the New Deal gets entire credit for this is, uh, is it seems to me, a mistake. For I'll give you just one example. The best anti-poverty program, aside from the American economy itself, has been the earned income tax credit, which was Ronald Reagan's darling. Ronald Reagan uh, in, embraced it, considerably expanded it. That's a classic conservative approach to welfare because in order to benefit from the earned income tax credit, you have to be earning income. That is, you have to have a job. So it's a welfare state keyed to the exercise of virtuous behavior, going to work. So there are ways, there's, there, there's a conservative approach to the safety net and there's the progressive approach, which is enervating, corrupting, and ultimately, uh, defeats economic growth. So if we look at the world today, what is the state of American progressivism, and where do they want to take us? <laughs> well, they want to take us ever deeper into dependency. Uh, they want more and more Americans dependent in more and more ways on the government. 
That's their understanding of equality, is equality of what? Of dependency. That's why we see throughout the system increased dependency, which is not an ancillary consequence of the progressive agenda. It is the progressive agenda. Food stamps. Under uh, 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 President Obama, the number of people on food stamps has exploded from 21 million to 47 million. 47 million is more people on live on the West Coast in the states of Washington, Oregon, and California. Even before Obamacare was passed, 50 cents of every health care dollar in this country was a government dollar. Uh, student aid. Today, uh, a majority of students are getting student loans, and student loans are now a transaction with the government. You see it everywhere, a kind of general dependency on the government. And in fact, the two most important decisions the average American family makes, A, to get a mortgage, and B, to get a loan for a college tuition, are now transactions with the federal government. Um, this next question is not meant to be insulting to them, because, but uh, let me just put it, what attracts people to progressivism, in particular, the honest, smart people? Because I don't, I think sometimes it's easy to treat this as obviously wrong, but I, I, I think you know, there definitely are thoughtful people who embrace it, and I'm curious as to why that happens. Well, some do because they, they are decent people, and they genuinely think that this progressivism is how you translate neighborliness and compassion into public policy. I think they're mistaken. I think they don't understand the social costs of the misguided compassion they're embracing, but they, that's one reason. But another reason, and insufficiently appreciated, is this. Progressivism requires the minute regulation of society, which means it requires regulators. It requires a clerisy, a privileged class of experts who know how we ought to live and the choices we ought to make and are jolly well going to use government power to make sure we make them. And a lot of progressives a, either want to be in that class of regulators or think that the class of regulators will be composed of people like them who went to the better schools and in the better neighborhoods and uh, know how to use the salad fork, not with the entree, et cetera, et cetera, have good manners. And it, it becomes a class thing that the governing class knows best. Um, a somewhat related question is, what do you think the biggest mistakes critics of progressivism make when they try to answer them and provide an alternative? I think the, the biggest mistake is to say that uh, uh, progressives are, are wrong, not just about the way they pursue certain goals, but the goals themselves. Again, it seems to me that uh, industrial societies everywhere have decided that there's going to be a, a substantial safety net to protect people from the vicissitudes of life. And you have to be able to criticize progressivism without criticizing that objective. Now, our audience is made up mostly of young people, and they do want to fight the trend that we've been on. What, what would you recommend the kinds of actions and activities that are effective in fighting something like a longstanding ideological trend? Well, two things. First, for reasons I adumbrated a moment ago, we can't rely on courts. The only way to stop progressivism is to win elections. So first of all, young people ought to get involved in electoral politics. 
Second, a number of them are going to go and should go, young people who share our beliefs and worries and values, are going to go to law school. And when they get to law school, they should join the Federalist Society. And they should seek out like-minded people and read like-minded scholars and understand that there are ways of taking constitutional law back in the direction of uh, that you and I will call the Madisonian direction. Third, they have to, to uh, by reading and writing, join this larger community of anti-progressive, no point in not calling it that, that's what we are, the anti-progressive Madisonians. Uh, there are lots of good websites, the Federalist is, is one, uh, they should read National Review and the Weekly Standard. They should become part of this burgeoning conversation. And it's growing and it's dynamic and it's full of talented young people uh, who, are, who are giving intellectual horsepower to the anti-progressive critique. Um, well, that, uh, let's end on this then. So uh, I'm embarrassed to admit that I spent a large part of my high school uh, career trying to write George Will columns uh, <laughs> in, 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 in your style. Um, what is the, what, what are your thoughts on the key to being an effective writer in the name of free, uh, free market ideas? Well, uh, be of good cheer. People don't want to read angry people. We do not need an anti-Paul Krugman. We don't want someone who disagrees with Krugman but argues in the same snide and condescending and hysterical way. Uh, be cheerful, be happy, be elegant in your writing. You know, nothing is more optional in this world than reading a syndicated column. So people are only going to do it if it's fun, and it won't be fun unless it starts with a good lead paragraph and unless the, the writing is elegant and funny and witty and all the rest. Uh, so, so the secret to being a good writer is to, well, Mark Twain said there are three things to do. One is read, the second is read, and the third is read. Conservatives ought to be readers because uh, it's good for the soul and it's good for the prose style. My guest today has been George Will. George, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. So I want to address a point that George made regarding whether or not it's even worth criticizing the welfare state. And his view was that it's a settled issue and our goal should not be to oppose it since the vast majority of Americans accept it, but to make it better. Now, obviously, we part ways there, but I think in a large part, it's we're looking at it from different perspectives. One perspective is that of electoral politics, which, as George suggested, is uh, his focus and what he thinks that younger people should be focused on. And there it's true. You won't get into office opposing the welfare state. But the perspective I take is one of ideas. And the question there always has to be, what is right, regardless of what's popular, regardless of what's politically likely to happen in the next five or 10 years? It's not what most voters believe is right. Now, ideas can be changed. Indeed, that's the whole idea behind this show and behind all of my activities. But that change takes time, and it's not the role of politicians or people engaged in elections to do it. They basically have to cash in on whatever ideas are out there in the culture. And what we should expect of them is to cash in on the best ideas, to appeal to the best ideas, uh, not to the worst. 
But I don't want to make too much of this distinction because the fact is that the right has won elections in the past. Indeed, during George Bush, at one point, they had control of every branch of government. But because the ideas of Americans hadn't changed, because they were very much um, heavily influenced by progressive ideas, by ideas that uphold government intervention, government regulation, government confiscation and distribution of wealth, at best what they did was slow our descent into statism, and as often as not, they sped it up. So that said, I think the key takeaway from today's show was that because of the ideas of progressivism, America today is a fundamentally different country than the individual rights republic our founders created. And that, I think, is a powerful idea that will not automatically convince people that the founder system is right, nor should it. But it at least raises a question. For people who value America, for people who value the founding fathers, and for people who value in some sense the idea of limited government that leaves us free, to see how far we've gone from that, to see how we basically abandon that as our actual practical ideal should raise the question of maybe we need to change in a radically different direction. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. And to learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. For the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debt draft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.